Thank you for tuning into the Freedom Church podcast, where you can catch our Sunday sermon on demand at any time. Hit the subscribe button so you don't miss out on any of the content that's shared every week at our local church in Round Rock, Texas. Here's this week's sermon. Happy Father's Day to all the dads. Isn't it amazing, man, with the incredible power that fathers have over their children just to speak life into them. Fathers, you are special, and I just want to tell you, happy Father's Day. And you can't have a Father's Day message without dad jokes. So humor me this morning as I'm going to share with you some of my favorite dad jokes. Here's the first one. A butcher accidentally backed into his meat grinder and got behind in his work. Like, how do you weigh a millennial? How do you weigh a millennial in Instagrams? Why does Snoop Dogg carry an umbrella? For drizzle. I love that one. Okay. Hey, due to quarantine... I'm only telling inside jokes this morning. <laughs> These are bad, I know. These are bad. But this one, this is my favorite one. I try to come up with a joke about social distancing, but this is as close as I could get. All right, it's over. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> That's enough father jokes. But man, we honor all dads this morning. And, and there's one thing that I see in our culture is there is an attack on manhood in our day. We live in a culture that is trying to feminize and redefine what a man is all about and God's plan for men. In his book, Weldon Hardenbrook wrote a book called Missing in Action, Vanishing Manhood in America. In his book, he gives four different types of false images that our culture tries to give us of males. The first one is what he calls the macho maniac. This is the cast of the Expendables. It's, it's Jason Statham, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone. These guys deny all their feelings. They never worry. They never apologize. They accomplish the impossible every eight minutes, and they bully people to do it. The second is what he calls the great pretender. This is Peter Griffin from Family Guy and Homer Simpson. They make fun of everybody. They're obese. They're dim-witted. They're immature. They, and they build their self-esteem by belittling everyone, especially their families. The third type of manhood, that the false image that we get, is the world-class wimp. These guys are so inept. They're constantly be, being outsmarted by their children, their wives, even their dogs. Nobody takes them seriously. It's kind of like that old sitcom, uh, uh, with Al Bundy married with children or Ray Romano from Everybody Loves Raymond. And there's a fourth image that has really been coming up in the last decade or so. It's called the gender blender. These men are Cameron Tucker or Michael Prickett from Modern Family. Or even we have uh, Bruce Jenner or it was now Caitlyn Jenner. This is a complete reversal of roles and identity in our culture. I, I just want to let you know as your pastor, there is an attack on what the Bible calls men of God. But what does it mean to be a man? That's why, the that's why our culture is constantly attacking manhood because sometimes we don't even know what manhood is. Are you a man when you're 16 and you can drive or 18 when you can vote and join the military or 21 when you can drink? 
Or are you a man when you get married and have kids? See, our culture knows that most men don't know what it means to be a man, so they tell us what a man is. And you see it throughout the marketing. It's like, hey, drink this beer and you'll be a man. Drive this car, you'll be a man. Watch this movie, you'll be a man. Work out like this, you'll be a man. Have this many relationships and you'll be a man. The lie of the culture is manhood is about consuming and being self-absorbed by yourself. But Genesis Genesis 1.27 tells us exactly what a man is. That God created man in his own image. We bear the image of God. Let me tell you about God. God isn't a consumer. He's a creator. And as men, we're called to be creators and cultivator, cultivators. We are not defined, we are defined as men by the life that comes out of us. We have been given seed by God. That means we have the ability as men to give life. And our life should, man, give life and bring life to every arena of life. Our families, our jobs, our communities. Men are people that create life in others. Because we bear the image of God. See, the definition of manhood is this, is the aspired and desired definition at which others should arrive. It's looking at someone and saying, wow, that man acts and looks like I want to look like. And that was ultimately the person of Jesus Christ. And in Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul gives a shout out to two men who exemplify the values that every man should aspire to have. The names of these men are Epaphroditus and Timothy. And in the book of Philippians, Paul writes this about these two men. In Philippians 2.20, he says this, that I have no one else like him. And then in Philippians 2.29, he says this of Epaphroditus, to honor men like him. Wouldn't you like the Apostle Paul to write that about you? How awesome would it be if our children and our families would say this about them, that there's nobody else like them, that we should honor them. And this morning, we're going to look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 19 through 30, and we're going to unpack the values that these men possessed and see what caused Paul to write this. The first value that we see here is compassion. We see it in Philippians 2.20. Paul writes this about Timothy. I have no one else like him who says this, who takes, I want you to underline, circle, highlight that word, a genuine interest in your welfare. Paul uses the word genuine to describe his love for others. How would you like to be described as genuine by your friends, by your family? Like that person, that guy right there, that person, they're the real deal. That people can genuinely feel your love and care for them. Let me ask you a question this morning, Freedom Church, to both men and women. How's your compassion meter this morning? Man, pity looks at a need and walks by. Compassion stops and helps and loves others. Compassion is what Jesus showed as he got on the cross and died for our sins. And it was the compassionate caring of the early church, of the needy and the broken that helped advance the church. The second century philosopher named Aristides, who was not a Christian by any means, he wrote a letter to the emperor Horatian in 125 AD about the rise of Christianity and why Christianity was spreading. And this is what he said. They love one another from the widows and they do not turn away their esteem and they deliver the orphan from him who treats them harshly. And he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And he, and they, when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother 
For they do not call themselves brethren after flesh, but brethren after the Spirit of God. They are found in their, and they are found in their other writings, which are hard to utter and difficult for one to narrate, which are not only spoken in words, but also, I like this, wrought out in deeds. In other words, Aristides was saying, I can't explain it, but they live out what they believe. These people are the real deal. So let me ask you a question this morning. What would the unbelievers in your life and in our city say about our faith, about your faith? How would they describe the faith of the church? I'm thankful for people who are seeing the faith of Freedom Church in action and compassion. A couple weeks ago, I got an email from Judge Larson who wrote me an email and he said this, quote, Thank you for sharing, thank you so much for sharing and helping Williamson County improve its family welfare system. I have heard such positive feedback from parents that participated in the program. In particular, I have heard what a difference Freedom Church has made in the lives of others. And he asked me to give him call, a call, and he asked me this, if we would be interested in a hosting another class to help reunite families that are broken apart and mentor them and care for them. And he says in his court, he's had a couple of different occasions where somebody had come to the three strands of ministry that we hosted right before COVID uh, hit. And he said this, that people want to come to the church. And he says, I want to be a part of church like that because I don't feel judged. I feel loved and I feel accepted. I thank God because it's the compassion and caring of others that brings people to Christ. Compassion is what should be driving men of God and women of God. Over the years, I've prayed a couple of prayers that have increased my compassion. And I want to challenge you to pray these prayers this morning. But let me be honest with you. These prayers will change your life. It'll change what you dream about. It'll change how you spend your time, your energy, your effort. But I challenge you to pray these prayers. Here are two prayers that have changed my life that I pray constantly. First one is this. Lord, break my heart with the things that break your heart. Say that. Pray that. Lord, break my heart with the things that break your heart. And another prayer I prayed since I was 19 years old is this. Lord, make me a father for the fatherless. Those are prayers right out of the heart of God. Those prayers have changed what I dream about. My goals. See, this is what I dream about. I dream about transitioning some of the homes in our property to kids that are aging out of the foster care system. That don't have a safety net of a family member. And I pray that one day the church would provide and step in and we would be the father to the fatherless. I dream that we would continue to mentor and care for the kids of the Williamson Juvenile Detention Center. Do you know that according to... Two statistics, the Department of Corrections, 85% of all youth in prison come from a fatherless home. And if there's one thing that the gospel teaches us, that we should not just father our children, but we should be a father to the fatherless. We should mentor and care for others. And I pray that we would continue to build that relationship and God would use us in this place. One day I, I look, I look, I drive through the city many times and I pray and I look at the disenfranchised and those who are hurting and I dream about building a freedom center here at Freedom Church where we would be able to teach English as a second language. We would teach job skills. We would bring, be able to bring people in who need a little bit of place to stay just for a while to give them the start. That we would be the hands and the feet of Jesus. That we would be a church that never sleeps. These are the things that keep me up at night. This is why I dream. I believe that God wants us to be a church of compassion, not just to hear sermons, but to live out our faith. 
Because it's this type of faith that will change the world. And that's what, Paul, that's what Paul commended Timothy for. A man of compassion. Once again, let me ask you the question this morning, Freedom Church. Where's your compassion leader at? How much do you love people? Because you cannot love God without loving people. He will give you a love for the broken. Second thing I see in this passage, a godly quality is selflessness. He was selfless. Look at this, verse 20 and 21. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks at his own interests, selfishness, not those of Jesus Christ. Being selfless is the opposite of being prideful. See, pride produces selfishness, but selflessness produces humility. And Timothy, according to Paul, was always looking not after his own needs, but the needs of Jesus Christ. He was, C.S. Lewis said this, that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking about yourself less. And let's be honest. We all naturally think about ourselves first. L let me prove it to you. If I said, somebody in this room right now, they got a booger. You know, you're not going to be looking at your neighbor's booger. You're going to be looking, is it me? Is it me? Or if you take a picture, and there's a picture of everyone, you always look at whose picture first. Your picture first, right? And if your picture is good, who cares if your kid's going crazy, or your wife has her hair closed, and she's doing something. You, you it's on Instagram. That's what you post because you want to look good first. So how do we live a selfless life? This is what Paul says. You look at the interests of Jesus. And the word Paul uses here is to spy for look, is to spy, is to plot. We are to intentionally look for ways to be like Jesus. In other words, we need to ask the question, what would Jesus do? I know it sounds cliche-ish. We've heard it all our lives. But that question comes straight out of this passage in how Paul lived his life, that Paul looked to do what Jesus did. In every situation, he looked to do what Jesus did. So how different would the world be that if in every, every situation we asked ourselves, what would Jesus do? In this argument with my spouse right now, how would Jesus respond? He would let her know, right? No, he wouldn't. What would Jesus do if his co-worker insulted him? He would throw punch him? No, he wouldn't. What would, you, what would Jesus do with this needy neighbor who always comes and wants to take up all your time and you just want to relax and they just want to talk and talk and talk? What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do with his time and his money and his resources? The next value I see in this passage is this. He was consistent. There's consistency. Look at verse 22. Timothy proved himself. He has served with me in the work of the gospel. Prove here means a test of character, means integrity. That means over the long haul, he showed himself to be a person worth trust. A, a big personality will make a great first impression, but success over the long haul is built on character. We know people who make big promises. They start off hard. They do the best that they can, but then after a while, they just kind of wane down. You can't trust them. You know them. They, they say, oh, I'm going to help you this Saturday. Don't worry, and they'll call you Friday right before. Oh, they, they make the biggest promises, but they let you down the most. They lack consistency. Let me tell you this. Consistency is what's going to determine how great your life becomes. Life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. I, I like what Rick Warren said one time, that we can overestimate what we do in 10 years and underestimate what we do with a lifetime of consistency. We raise our kids one day, one Bible study, one compliment, one word of blessing, one game at a time. We build our marriages, one compliment, one act of selflessness, one day 
one moment at a time. And it's that consistency. It's not just doing well for a month or two or two months or even a year. It's like Eugene Peterson said this. It's long obedience in the same direction, consistently walking, consistently moving, consistently following God. And one day you look at your life and the consistency of your life displays the glory of God. We want overnight success, but God demands long obedience. The fourth, the fourth thing I see that we see with value in these men was this, is commitment. Look what it says. Paul says this now of Epaphrodites in verse 25. Who is also your messenger, whom I sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you in his distress because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill. And look what it says. And he almost died. But God had mercy on him. See, let me give you the context. Paul's in prison in Rome. And the people of Philippi, they took up an offering for Paul to cover his expenses and take care of his needs. But to get from Philippi to Rome, it was 800 miles in rough terrain, in a difficult moment. And they're looking for somebody to volunteer in the dream team for that assignment. Who's taking that? 800 a year, eight, eight weeks on a camel. So who's going to volunteer six weeks of their lives? Epaphrodite says, I will. I'm committed. Epaphrodite volunteered, and when he got there, he got sick. It was life-threatening. But here's the thing about Epaphroditus. He was persistent in spite of the pain, in spite of the challenges. He gets the offering to Paul because his number one goal was to advance the gospel. See, I love what Ken Blanchard says in his book, One Minute Manager. He says this, there's a difference between interest and commitment. When you're interested in doing something, you only do it when it is convenient. Ouch. But when you're committed to something, you accept no excuses. Can I tell you, it doesn't happen often. But every once in a while, throughout history, there's a man, there's a woman that wholly commits their life to the gospel. And they change the world. And people write about him like Timothy and Epaphroditus. A man like David Livingston, the legendary missionary who was known as Africa's greatest missionary. He was the Abolish, fought to abolish slavery. He was a medical doctor. He was a man of God. Let me tell you a little bit about Livingston. When Livingston was growing up, he would sit on his father's knee and his father would tell him stories of medical missionaries around the world. And when David, young David, heard these stories, his heart would start pounding with a sense of calling. And he says, Daddy, I want to grow up and I want to be a man like that. Livingston got on his knees one day and he said this. Pray this prayer that changed his life. Send me anywhere, only go with me. Lay any burden on me, only sustain me. Sever any ties but the ties that bind me to your service and your heart. He goes off to seminary. He gets his degree in medicine, and he goes to Africa. And when he gets to Africa, he pens in his journey, in his journal, these words, the haunting specter of the smoke of a thousand villages under the African sun has been seared into my heart. And he goes, and he finds the famous Muffet family, the missionaries there. He falls in love with their daughter, Mary, and they get, they fall in love, they have a family, and they start off in this incredible medical missionary journey to change all of Africa. But as their family began to grow, sickness began to maul his family. His children became sick and died. 
it was so bad, he had to look to his wife, Mary, and says, Mary, it's too tough here. Can you, would you take the children back, and I'll finish this out, and I will see you soon. You know what soon was? It wasn't five weeks. It wasn't five days. It wasn't five months. It was five years till he saw Mary again. I'm not justifying it. I'm not condoning it. I'm not exalting it. I'm simply stating what it was. Five years till he saw his wife and children again. But yet they stayed madly in love because over months they would exchange some of the most romantic, heartfelt letters. And the next time Livingston saw his wife, he was a different looking man. He had 27 bouts with malaria. His faith, his face had been so burnt to a crisp, it looked like leather due to the African sun. One day he was out and a lion attacked him thanks to a thick coat. It didn't kill him, but it disfigured his shoulder that he was just the shell of the man that he used to be. One day he was outside and traveling. He ran into a branch. He lost an eye and it scratched up his face. So when Livingston came to see his wife again, he wasn't the same man that she used to be. She was still beautiful, but he was different. The toll and the commitment of the plan of God had changed his life. And as he hobbled back to the house, he was so excited to see his wife and so excited to tell his dad the stories firsthand when he'd only been told thirdhand. But as he got there, just days before they had buried his father and Livingston's heart was broken. As he tried to trans transition back to the life he knew, one day he looked at his wife, Mary, and said, Honey, the hunting specter of the smoke of a thousand villages is still burning in my heart. I have to go back. And he went back. He says, Mary said, It's good that I continue raising the kids. So she raised the kids. And when the kids were grown, Mary once again joined him in Africa where she was born as a missionary's daughter. But the worst had happened. The thing that he had dreaded the very day she set foot on African soil again, she contracted a disease that her, that her body couldn't fight again. A few days later, they buried her within days. He stood by his grave, one onlooker said, and he wept and wept bitterly. Somebody heard him weeping so loudly and crying out, and he prayed this prayer. My Jesus, my King, my life. My all, I again consecrate my life to thee. I shall place no value in anything I possess or in anything I do except in relation to thy kingdom and thy service. And after that prayer, he said the words of the Lord came to him that he had remembered all those lives. He says, Lo, I am with you always, even into the end of the age. And Livingston went out in his commitment to take the gospel to the continent of Africa. And historians tell us that as he was there, he went back to his village and when he got there he found out that somebody had played a dirty cruel trick on him they stole all his medication and his body was so mauled and so broken down that only the relief only the medication would bring relief to his body as he was in pain groaning unable to find medication he got on his knees and he cried out to God and he said this he said God you promised that you'd be with me always to the end of the age and he said God I need that medicine as he finished praying that prayer he saw Someone walking toward him. It wasn't an African. It was a white man. And he says the famous words, David Livingston, I presume. And he said, yes, I'm David Livingston. The man said, I am Henry M. Stanley. And I've been co commissioned by the papers to write a story about your life. He said, Mr. Livingston, I want you to know two things about me before we get, before we get started. I'm the biggest swaggering atheist on the face of the earth. Don't try to convert me because it won't work. And number two, I have the medication for you that someone sent. Four months later, 
the biggest swaggering atheist on the face of the earth, became a Christian on African soil. He wrote the two-volume biography titled Livingston of Africa by Henry M. Stanley, one of the most beautifully, brilliantly written autobiographies. If you've ever written, if you've never read that book, read that book. Your faith will be inspired and challenged. As time went on, Livingston got so weak he couldn't hardly walk, so they would carry him on a stretcher from village to village to preach the gospel. One day he got so sick, he asked his national brothers to take him back so home he couldn't even hardly breathe. And they brought him home. And then they brought him home. They asked him, he asked him, would you put me in a position to pray? So they put him on his knees to pray. And when he would pray, they would say, it was such a holy time. The presence of the Lord would come. That They felt like it would be blasphemous to hear this conversation between Livingston and God because it was so intimate. So they left the room. After several minutes, somebody came to talk to Livingston. He was still on his knees. They said, wait. Then a half an hour went by. They said, he's still praying. An hour went by. They said, he's still praying. Finally, somebody concerned about that he was weak. They went over there to check on his well-being. They grabbed him by the shoulder. They shook him, and he fell over. He was dead. He died the way he lived in the presence of God, committed to the Lord. Commitment to God. The fifth thing, Valley, I want you to see from these men is this. It's courage. Look at verse 29. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy. With great joy. Honor men like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. Underline this word. Risking his life to make up for the help that you could not give me. Risking in the Greek literally means this. Hazarding his life. It's a gambling term. It means to stake everything you got on a dice roll. Epaphroditus risked his life and almost died for the work of Christ to make up for the help the Philippians couldn't give Paul, and he wanted to get help to the Apostle Paul. See, in life, there's really two kinds of movies that are played in my household. One is the one Jennifer and I watched together. The other movie is the type of movie I watch by myself. Jennifer loves chick flicks. You've heard me say this. Here's the thing about chick flicks. Chick flicks. They, I'm not nothing against them, but they're boring. So predictable. How are they going to fall in love like a Hallmark movie? Like everybody knows what's going to happen. They're going to kiss at the end. They're going to fight at the beginning. They're going to fall in love. So predictable. Then they're real movies. There's what I call action movies. This is Braveheart, Gladiator, Rocky. And then even my favorite movie, one of my favorite scenes of all time is that scene, that scene from Braveheart, where William Wallace, played by Mel Gibson, he paints his face blue. He's riding on a horse, and he says this, many of you would trade all these days, I could hear him say it, just for one day to come back and tell your enemies, they may take our lives, but they may never take our freedom. And you're like, yes, you want to paint your face. You want to fight your guts out. You want to be out there. Let me tell you, there's a lot of men that live chick Flick lives. There's a lot of Christians that live chick flick lives. It's predictable. It's boring. But yet God's calling us to live an action life. A life that would change the world. A life that changes everything. You know, so many Christians, not just men, are bored and they're unfulfilled. They don't have anything to live for. No challenges, no goals bigger than themselves. They've lost the spirit of adventure that they had when they were young. They aren't risking anymore. When you stop risking, you start dying. 
See, let me tell you, as God's people, as men and women, we were created for more than just cheering on a sports team or decorating a house or conquering a video game. God has made us for one thing, and that is to display his glory. And let me say this. If you aren't doing anything that scares you and is causing you to risk, you aren't living. Here's what I've known in following Jesus. When you follow Jesus, it's always going to take you out of your comfort zone into the faith zone. Look at Abraham. He left everything he knew to follow God. Daniel was there in the face of a lion. David was in front of Goliath. The disciples left everything and were eventually opponents to Rome. So my question to you this morning in your walk with God, how many risks are you taking in your relationship with God? Some of the reasons that we find faith in church sometimes unfulfilling is because it doesn't cost us. There's no risk to us. We are living chick flick lives when God is saying, I want you to walk in a brave heart calling that I have for your life that will make a difference in a city, in a community, and not just your family, but the families of others because you are my child. You were created in the image of God to display the glory of God in your day. And let me tell you about this. This type of faith will constantly put you in awkward positions. It'll constantly cause you like, wow, Lord, do you want me to do that? Do you want me to write a check like that? Do you want me to say that? Do you, do you want me to get up on my couch and stop watching Netflix and do that? Plato wasn't right about a lot, but he was right when he said this, that the saga of a nation is the saga of its families written large. In our day, our nation is in as much turmoil as it's ever been. And it's not going to turn around morally on its own. Politics won't bring solutions to our problems. I don't care if you're riding a donkey or an elephant, if you lean to the left or to the right. Education can't fix a culture. Only Jesus can bring the change that we need to the core. And God calls us to share Jesus with everyone. And sometimes those conversations are going to cause us to risk and be courageous. It's going to be pretty difficult when we get to heaven. You've heard me say this and explain to the Apostle Paul when we're all in the beam of seat judgment and we're all looking at that. Hey, God, why didn't you share the gospel, man? Can you imagine Paul up in heaven asking you, hey, hey, how, how come you had a hard time doing this? Were you threatened by prison? No. Was there a lot of persecution? No. Did they say they were going to torture you, cut off your head? No. Well, why did you share with your with the people around you? It was awkward. That's going to be the biggest awkward conversation of all eternity. To me, one of the most tragic verses in the Bible is when Paul says of Timothy, I have no one like him. Timothy and Epaphroditus were just ordinary guys, yet 2,000 years later, we are talking about them. Guess what I want to challenge you? Live your life for something that's bigger than yourself. Live with these qualities, these values. And you might not be able to change the whole world, but you can change one person's world. Thanks again for listening to the Freedom Church podcast. We hope that you were inspired and motivated to continue to grow in your faith. Don't forget to subscribe and share with others.